Welcome to the 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast, a retrospective. You were defeated, left for dead. All is ashes. Your heart stirs. Your broken body numbing with the rage of retaliation. Werewolf the Apocalypse Retaliation, a new board game set in the world of darkness, created by the same team behind Vampire the Masquerade, Chapters. Flyos, imagination leaping ahead. Hey folks, Brennan here. Thanks for tuning in to our 25 years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast. If you want to reach out or follow us, we're on Facebook and YouTube as 25 years of Vampire the Masquerade, Twitter, Instagram, and Twitch as 25 years of VTM, and on our website at 25yearsofvtm.com. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash 25 years of Vampire the Masquerade. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Hey everybody, welcome to a great episode we got lined up today. I of course am accompanied by Mike and DJ. Fellas, how we doing? Doing good, sir. Very good, very good. Fantastic. Hey, um, this book today that we're going over, it's uh, Deva Kiss of the Succubus. I, I gotta say, some of you have called it a clan book, myself included. I'm, I'm not uh, not free of this. Uh, maybe misnomer. I kind of want to state this off the bat. You're, if you're looking for a book that's going to tell you, yes, this is the truth, this is what's in the clan, this is what's going on, that's not the angle they take. They made this book to be an in-game prop. Along the same lines as the book of Nod that everybody knows, like somebody compiled data in the vampire world and you could use it in-game or out-of-game. You could choose in your game if this is canon, or of course this isn't, but you're going to be hard-pressed to call what's in this book quote-unquote canon. It serves really as a fantastic book that could be like a hunter prop. It could be whoever gets this compilation of a group calling themselves Deva. That's, that's really what it is. And one thing I'm going to say, throughout this book, almost more so than any other book, I mean, we saw a lot of this in the Venture book and even the Rome book that we reviewed for Requiem, they had this style where everybody kind of chimes in that gets a hold of these in-game documents because it's sort of their style. It fits and it works. It allows a lot of people to kind of see their points of view. But as we go through this material, a couple things I want to note. One, uh, we're going to just talk about what we feel is relevant. Our goal with what we're reviewing here is to see, is this Deva book worth it to a Requiem player to be able to play a Deva? Does it help you do that? And what are the ways it does do that? Two, is it Vampire? I know it's weird. The company made it. It doesn't mean they're correct. There are authors that get contracted to make this material, to make these books, and they don't work for you, and they don't necessarily work for me, and that might be an echoing theme that a lot of them don't know. These books were made back in a time where you didn't actually have immediate feedback that came from all the fans like you do now, and that's kind of the point of reviewing them, is to see how we've used them in games and the value. So we'll just shorten it to say the value of the book to a player trying to portray a vampire in Requiem. Right? So... Is Deva portrayed in a way that we all agree to, i.e., what a lot of people say they are? And the title's Kiss of the Succubus, so I'm going to just go ahead and cheat. Yes, most likely they're going to hit that mark. Second <laughs> one is a vampire. Of course it is. It comes out of Requiem, right? We know that too. But maybe we can give a little more insight to help you maybe disagree or agree with that. And there's some controversial stuff in here too that I think they wisely implanted to kind of show a, a, a nice portrayal of an evolving world of people who don't have a memory from when they've been in torpor of what is real and what is fake. And I want you to keep that in mind. Very easily, we also tend to dwell on the fact of the memory of ages and what happens and how 
let's just get out of the way so we can keep talking about that. Everybody take what we're about to say with a grain of salt. This book does that. That's why we got three people on here. I read it. They read it. We all got a different opinion. This book is designed to get you to have a different perspective based on everybody who reads it. This way, everyone enjoys the book. And when they use it, it's like a fresh usage, right? So it's like, I'm an author or I used it or compiled it as a character and it could be a different take. DJ could play the same Deva with the same book and with a different angle, claiming his mentors and whatnot led him to this material and blah, blah, blah. Mike can as well. That's what we're saying. However, our job is to say, not just be entertaining, but a little bit informative on here. And hopefully, you decide to pick this book up. Because I'll tell you off the bat, I think it's Aces. It's a, it's a fantastic book for, for what it needs to do. But, that's me saying great. DJ prefaced this by saying there's a distinctive difference in shift and venture. And it was kind of ominous when he said this before we started recording. DJ, my man, take it away. Enlighten us a bit. Sure. So, one of the things that Bob was mentioning before is how the information is presented. And I think um, the way that it is presented is, once again, this compilation of just stories that are coming in. And it's so good because we've, we've spoken about this before, and it's, you actually get to see this in action where you have the subjective voice in spades. It's everywhere. It gives you the idea that everything that's being spoken about is in that exact fashion. The reason I say that is when we took a look at the Lords, uh, the Ventru Lords of the Damned book, it, the way it was presented is exactly as, you know, we took it, I'm going to say right now, I took it for granted. And the reason I say I took it for granted was, you know, coming in for revised and we're taking a look at our history, it reads off as a text, this is our history, this is what it looks like. Here are snippets of what you would anticipate a Lordly Venture to do. But what I didn't recognize was perhaps it was the fashion in which the author had written it that just shows the pomp and circumstance of how a Venture acts. Here, with the Deva book, it's... I'm, I'm just going to throw this out right now before we can get to it. It's so meta, it hits you in the face, and it's uh, I love it for it. Why? Because there's clever things that are written into it. So help me out, example, help me out, help me out, help me out before we get there. Sure. It's meta. It's meta. We use common jargon jargon in this industry. I even noticed this on the on the Onyx podcast before we timed in. Um, these guys are experts in the field, play with it all the time. Love them and respect them. But I couldn't keep up because it dawned on me, there's a common jargon people use where they assume the audience is the same old, old, right? This is people who use the same lingo we do, like it's office chatter and it's not. And so when we say meta... What are you referring to? Just in case we have the fans timing in that are just just now new fans, right? What is what do we mean by that? Sure. So in this case, in the reference of meta, it ends up becoming that the the template that we're looking at, the, you know, the the key, the sorcerer's stone, you know, the philosopher's stone, in terms of how we view it, is right in your face in terms of all the pop culture references that hit you and make you recognize that you've always seen this in the background and you really haven't paid attention to it. Kind of like also when you're breaking the fourth wall of sorts, it's right on that barrier where there's a lot of references that are made. There are references made to Carmilla in this book, right? Which we'll get into at one point or another. There's nice little snippets of of, uh, of cartoons, right? These little comic strips that are written in there. But in the fashion, <laughs> as you read them, you're like, this is so clever because yes. they try to convey a message to you, right? And I was like, it's brilliant in how it's delivered. And because it's so Deva, you know, it's like if this is the pulse of humanity, then they do a very good cheeky job of of showing you how a Deva would communicate with you so that you get that pulse. And I, and I agree with that a lot. But on, on term, you know, Deva, you know, we talk about defining definition. Well, before I set that up and pass it to you, Mike, that's, that's, your, that's your tip. I'm about to throw a ball your way, sir. Um, I want to address something real fast. Uh, when I mentioned on, Honest, Onyx Path Podcast, guys, check it out. They're, they're great and informative. Just... All I said was is that I couldn't keep up, but I tuned in like halfway through. And, uh, you know, my wife was listening to him a bit. She said, you should check it out. And typically we, t- we tune in and see and listen to just try to keep your pulse on things. 
in no way am I decrying them. Please, uh, they all do a fantastic job with it, and it's worth listening to. To keep it makes you feel like you get an ear into the industry, what they're doing, really makes them personable, and I think that's a huge difference uh, for a lot of the book companies from the traditional, right? And like, well, for instance, let me say this: White Wolf, when you make that term and you referred to that company back in their day, who cared? Let's let's be ultimate. Who cared? It was the phrase everybody said to refer to this mythical company, like a mystical wolf was making books that we bought. But you couldn't name a soul that was a part of it, right? You couldn't name a person. You had no idea unless you had a pundit <laughs> like me who read a, you know, oh, the author that did this book. I paid attention to that. Why? Well, because, you know, we got lucky to Gen Con and apparently they were on a panel and we went and listened, right? But that is not the average. So you just said White Wolf made it. It's valid. Here it is. It is much later as this uh, industry has kept on going that you learn what's in a name. It's just a title to another company and people work at these companies and these people are approachable. You can reach out to them. But the most important thing is that we as fans is to identify with the creators of our material to understand that they are fans of the same material. And so your communication is super important. It's two-way. Your ability to reach out and give them valid feed forward of what they need to do to improve on. Not just say it sucks. Not just say you're unhappy, although they need to hear that. They also need to hear how they can make it better for you and if it's possible. And I think that podcast is one of the one of the ways that, that Onyx Path is reaching out and they're making connections to make the best relationships with their fans. And I just wanted to say that. Um, but enough time, Mike. I filibuster as much as I could for you. We're passing it back to ask the ultimate question, Mike, to you with this book in mind. What's a Deva? What does this book tell you what a Deva is? Um, they are they're an archetype, right? Uh the fact that they use succubus in the title of the book um, is was the big hint for me as I was reading through it, right? When I think of a succubus, I think of a, like those characters from the video games, mostly naked, great big horns, filthy um, wings, at the same time uh, depicted to seduce you. I know again. Um, and that image is, is a David's soul to me, right? When I look, when I see that image of the, the demon that is nevertheless humanoid and nevertheless enticing I understand that this book is trying to tell me um, the deva kind of labor under this this curse of having to do these things that make them feel human and yeah they plan to eat me but they also they want me to enjoy it right they want me to want to be eaten they want me to be part of what makes their curse easier to bear right and so it, it's just a design and a, a presentation that makes it you, you can understand it by, by empathy whatever you don't understand by analysis what a David is when you read this book okay okay um, DJ what I'm going to walk down here with you is that Mike I feel is every man I already often said this mm -hmm. right Mike's our resident cane bro and what I mean by that is is that I don't mean that as an insult to Mike he tends to be what we call a sheet mechanic he's somebody who could look at the rules and identifies the rules but Mike does not perform so well in looking at the story however he's grown leaps and bounds and, and has an open mind and is always expressing better it's not that I don't think Mike can understand and not to talk to you like you're not here Mike but what I'm trying to do is entreat the audience that you might be a cane bro or feel frustrated that the rules speak to you easier than necessarily the story that comes with it and this is often the most difficult thing about role-playing. You have people who naturally gravitate to the story, that they get it and they live for it, but they don't so well understand the rules. And then you have the reverse, right? It's rare you find a person in the middle because you have to work to become that person in the middle. And Mike is definitely on that journey. 
um, all the podcasts I listen to, whether we have Mike on, he can even hear it, right? He goes, he goes from being very passionately argumentative to understanding, okay, I get that, and seeing more and going with it. And I think that that description you gave right there, I have nothing wrong with it in terms as presented what the deva looks like on the surface, right? It definitely hits all the buttons as to what they are, especially the description of them being the horned kind of seductress, uh, cybersexual, but dark delight sort of thing going on. Yep. That's part of it. But I wonder, DJ, if we could scratch a little deeper. For instance, when it talks about this intro story that they get into, um, what did you think of it? I was floored uh, by the story because it's a combination of two things going on at the same time. Uh, one of them is speaking about this, you know, the first letter that's written is talking about this one vampire, this Deva, who just makes a reference to its sire. And at one point it was... It lived with its sire and enjoyed life for what it was, and he didn't even want to be embraced to begin with, and that's one aspect of it. But upon his death is when he started to recognize what the differences are. And even more so, I think what was most impactful about it, and it's going to carry throughout the book, is the fact that perception is everything. You know, what is really real doesn't matter outside of what it is that you felt, because that's what was presented to you to begin with. You know, and then it, it shifts the story over. That's kind of like the first scene of, of like a story background. And it'll shift over to this amazing, amazing, amazing story about this guy who's just helping out um, this woman along the way and takes her home. He's not even sure why he's over there yet with her. Um, and they have a conversation. And uh, by dint of him just merely guessing that she was a vampire, this affair begins. And the reason I say that in that fashion is because one of the key phrases in there is that this, this man was, he felt he was morally superior to everything because he had a, what he considered a very, very attractive, you know, partner. Um, and he didn't have to look anywhere else, so he thought he was good. But he fell into this hole where he's just being dragged into this affair and he can't get away from it. Like, I could go further into it, Bob. Do you want me to go well, into it? Well, because well, I'm, I'm going to him to help you out here because we're, we're going to yeah. drill this because we have to understand this book is written to understand on an emotional level. So you have to open yourself up and be perceptive when you read this material because it's written as an in-game prop. What that means is there are several different minds and angles they're trying to hit to help you learn what it is they want you to portray every time you play a Deva. Like some of the, some type of way, there's a common theme to go with it. And the first story you talk about is actually the same character from the second part. I don't know if you caught that. I did not. Because it's written so, in such a fashion. That is great. <laughs> So what it is, is that from what I, what I gathered from, at least this is what I took, even if I'm wrong, I, I really prefer to look at it this way then, because this is what I thought they did and on purpose. The first letter is of the guy who is a vampire, his, Marissa is who this is. Marissa, and his name is Kevin, right? Because that's what it is at the end of the letter. Kevin writes about how he misses her, about how he spent this time with her, and there's this disease that she had, and she's withering, and she had to go away. And he had to hold, he was left holding the bag to make the excuse as to why she had to go away, because that's just what you do. He learned that perception is everything from his time with her, that you always mm -hmm. have to stay and look your best. So that's a Deva thing, number one, vanity. They can't escape it. They can't be real, but that has to be an image they have, and they drink that vanity up. However, in that letter, you're left feeling like this is a person who's kind of sad, right? It talks about how he misses her and she's gone and he's holding the bag and what's going on and he admits his weaknesses, which is uncharacteristic for somebody who was once vain, but typically they seem wiser. When you have somebody who's been narcissistic and vain and they're able to come through hitting rock bottom and building, becoming a real person coming back, they tend to be a better person and one you want to know 
because they were that asshole that was despicable and understand the pitfalls of being that entity, but tend to have insights now that make him a better person to just be around. And they try to turn over the better thing, but he goes the way of the vampire. He didn't necessarily become better, and he's quick to point that out, right? And I felt that letter hit those keys home. They leave you to decide. And the vampires who read that letter are judging the shit out of this guy. Right? How shitty of a dude is this? He's in this house crying about his sorry. Where did she go? Like, what matters? This piece of shit. And look what he left. This huge diary with all these documents and some ridiculous folder called Kevin. And something about our old ways and the masquerade. And someone comments, if he likes to masquerade so much, why do you make this document? Right? So definitely, they have like a trolling pundit theme with Deva. But what was great is this persecutor in writing heads at the end, I really do miss her, and I wonder where she is. And I'm doing this for you, like some sort of revenge thing for a guy, and he's promising him I'll get you back, but you know, I really just hope that through this we can find her. And it's like, wow, the power of this Marissa. Think about it. She left a guy who clearly was a whirlwind romance to him. To him, that's what it was. I posit to the court, when you read that letter and then move on to the folders called Kevin, right, just this day in the life, you watch mm. as this dude who's narcissistic as hell, he's a stockbroker, I believe from New York was actually right, and he's a stockbroker walking around with this perfect ass. He can't stop talking about himself, his own ass when he's alive, that he was, mm. he rocked this body type, he would wake up and some days he would run full out for a mile nonstop as fast as he could. Uh, at least seven days a week, at least seven miles in a week, he would do this. This perfect uh, physique a la Patrick Bateman obsession from American Psycho. And that's what he did. And he sculpted this image and he coveted this image and he drove a Lincoln Navigator. Kept talked about it with such pride that it must have been tricked out with a lot of money, but I, I could think of a way more expensive car is why it kept cracking me up. I gotta remember when the book was written, right? And so, and I'm not a car guy and I was like, Lincoln Navigator, I guess, you know, brand new, all right. And, and here he is talking about how this sculpted his image, right? And so he talks about going places and just making quick judgments on people. None more obvious when he talks about, as you mentioned, the girl he's with. The girl he's with is a uh, some woman who won this championship uh, close to gymnast, something like that. She's a gymnast and won top accolades in competition, and she still has that body. And she knows how to doll her face up to rock that physique and appearance that she still has maintained. And so he's nested with her a bit and he kind of likes her, but that's the piece of ass he has at home and she's fucking golden because she gives him status, right? That's what that is. He's talking about, she makes me look good and we look good together and I'm a stockbroker and I got money, so we're a power couple. It's cool. And you know, you want to vomit. These are the type of people I want to throw gasoline on and throw a match at, right? Just to bring a little tragedy in and let them see that there are more real things in life that you need to pay attention to than is bullshit. And that's not who you are, right? It's a part of what you do, but what you do isn't necessarily who you are. And, you know, you've told us nothing of it. But then this character writing the story, this Kevin is vulnerable and he's aware of it. He talks about that even as a stockbroker, he had to be heavily medicated. That's part of his process. He was needy. He needed people in this person and they fit this paradigm. And at, and at this point, victim, right? And I'm like, I'm keeping it neutral. I'm going, what are they trying to convey here? The author and the number one thing they're getting in here in this quote, and I'll tell you about this. It says, my memories do not seem like memories until I die. And that's a quote from Kevin. It's very powerful. It talks about the call of humanity lost. That's what, that's what I got from it. That this is a guy who became a vampire after talking about he was this narcissist. Something happens to him. 
where he becomes his vampire holding a bag for his sire, who's actually his lover, that he misses. He's still feeling the call of that succubus kiss. He never shook it. He can never get rid of it. But there is evidence to say that this Marissa got with him, used him, and left him, and it's her pattern. It's a destructive pattern she can't escape. And when she dips like that, she leaves behind a lot of victims, because they're all reading this document that's in mm -hmm. there. And it makes you feel that you, the reader of this deva, you're either a victim as well of a deva who might have done something like this to you, or you're reading this document as a deva going, what sloppy work to allow these people. This is the problem with our kind. You know, it's which side of the fence? Are you the deva pointing a finger and accusing? This is why we have the masquerade to protect, right? This shouldn't exist, but it still gives you an insight into what it is to be a deva or an up-and-coming successful mover and shaker deva. Or you're the one who's new to the blood. And what might you encountered? How might you have come to the blood? So what we're talking about, the beginning gives you the staples of how to build your life when you encountered the vampire, what it was like, and if they kept you, i.e. your sire, that relationship with your sire that's pivotal to the creation of what you're playing, this helps formulate how they might have come into your life and pluck it. None more important than they choose a, a way that, that uh, Kevin runs in to this girl, Marissa, right? That's the story I'm talking about because it's a big portion in here and why I'm like kind of kind of hogging here is because we can't miss that because we can't rough go over it in a high in a high overview because this is the purpose of the book. Think about it. We talk about Kevin as a victim and he gets to the point where he says, "Okay, I'm going to focus on the vampire and stop talking about me." That it's bullshit because Kevin's manipulating you. His narcissism says he has to talk about himself. He has to throw up what what was happening to me, me me and why I was chosen and why she was with me and the stuff that I had and why I was awesome in life and you're like really this this dude's kind of it's kind of tiresome right it takes a lot of energy just to read about this guy he's sucking it from me he's not even trying and uh when you get through to a point though he goes and then I get to the gas station right that that that, that super moment where he's bent over showing his ass <laughs> he's filling up the gas tank and he as he says this average girl out of nowhere makes this comment but was so witty he just couldn't leave it alone. And when he looked, he was smitten instantly. And he didn't know why. As he said, he felt it in his loins to hear her talk. <laughs> right? That is the animal magnetism of the beast that they call majesty. That's not necessarily her even using it, just having it. A deva has that curse. I talked about this before when we got to this book. I said I was going to take time to explain that. That's exactly and precisely what I mean. This Marissa couldn't help but be drawn to a guy like this and why is that by all accounts even by him in his statements and you have to read between the lines he's smitten by the emotional high that he's dumping all these dopamines in for that first love contact that he can't get rid of that he himself is making it up it's puppy love we all do this when you get with a new partner you're excited about right right you refuse to see the forest in the trees you refuse to hear the negativity about him why you got to get that ass <laughs> you got to get that relationship you gotta get that enjoyment. You gotta ride those emotions and use them up before it goes away. And you can't let anybody tell you no. Why? Because then that jealousy hits you, but they're just trying to steal yours. They're just trying to get in what you got. Right? Why are we always messing with me? Right? Everybody does that. You just kind of laugh at your friends and give them time to settle in, typically. Not Kevin. Kevin straight up had a life like that. In fact, he goes through to describe a moment, and then I promise I'll turn this back to you guys, but I just want to arm you with a lot here. Even the moment where he talks about the Jennifers. You remember that comment? Yeah, yeah. How all of her how all of her friends 
look the same. Even the ones that aren't Jennifer's should be. I remember that. Yeah, in the in the club, yeah. or the bar. Yeah. Yeah, they talk. He talks about how straight up the patriarchy's real, right? He doesn't call it that, but he describes the problem with the patriarchy in the terms that everything is to this mythical scale of appearance that you need it somehow. That this status that guys project is a real thing, and Kevin is the card carrying member of the problem. That this Marissa wasn't a person, wasn't a woman. She was another status attempt that really his dick wanted more than anything, and he couldn't shake it and understand why. Note what he said. He is a woman at home that is hot, by his definition. He has a scale of hotness and she's like an 11. Not only that, well gainfully employed. Not only that, she's head over heels about him. So what's he doing in a gas station shaking his tail feather at somebody else? And he describes it as peacocking. That he has the car and he has the job and he rocks his physique to get multiple women to drain them, use them, and spit them out once they realize that's what he's doing. He enjoys doing that. Just because he has money doesn't mean he wants to spend it. But if that's your hang-up, he will spend a little just to drain you of the emotion he's looking for, which is complete and utter worship. And that is a succubus. That's a succubus to the T. That's a male version of it, which then you look at Marissa and go, now I know why she was drawn to him. She felt a kinship to this guy, but not like you think. It was a kinship in the regards of what he could become. Like, he's an ideal deva if we just give him the immortality, but that wasn't her initial. Her initial, I feel, was to ruin him. Was to get with him and pull him away from his ideal life because she knew she wouldn't be what he wanted. And off the bat, she begins charming him for just food. It's first, use him as a blood doll. And what I submit to you is that first picture. Right, do you remember that? Where it's a painting? And it shows a woman with Kevin, and Kevin looks very thin, very drained, very tired. And you can tell mm. that he might have had an athletic physique, and he might have been really good with it, and that might have been his his thing. However, he's posing this picture with a woman who is looking away from him. Her posture is leaning in. Kevin wouldn't know that she wasn't looking at him. She's looking off and away. And the way the artist painted this, you could tell that her face appears to be a mask. Right? That's what it looks like. It's just the artistic style, maybe. But the way Kevin describes, you know, this whole interaction, it's like he's aware that this relationship is draining him, but he can't look at that. That's not important to him. He gave up his job, he gave up gave up his uh his uh, relationship, and he lied to get with her. He had to be with this mer- everything to be with her, right? Was the point. But she is clearly just happy he's there. Right? He's a collection. He is a status grab for her temporarily. It's the chew toy the dog drove off, the, the new toy. You drag off to the place, the dogs will play with it for a bit, chew it, slobber all over it, ruin it a bit, and then ignore it. Never touch it again. And it's going to go for the, pay, uh, was it, the uh, the toilet roll, right? The uh, toilet paper roll. Eventually, he's just going to go back to his old chew some, right? Just whatever, because that's easier. That, to me, is what Marissa's doing to a T, and poor Kevin can't even see it. And I'm not the only one getting that impression. You had vampires on the side just say, this is the saddest tale of a, of a classic I'm a blood doll targeted and used up and spit out and she had, you know, she abandoned him. This is what happens. And they get to that. But the final piece of it that makes this haunting, we know he gets embraced. At some point he gets embraced. Was it by her? And that's the part that's unclear. Right? She draws him into this world, she uses him, and then poof, she's gone. Welcome to the succubus. But it's like no less of a fate than what Kevin himself cultivated as a as, as a male in his life. Right? 
look the best you can, seduce people over, give them a false bit of goods as to who you are, pretend to care about them, make them want you, want to own you, want to be with you, want to take care of you, and then when they start realizing that it's a one-way street, it gets tiresome and you move on. Classic whirlwind, use them up romance from a person who really has a lot of these bad traits and impulses that are just repeated, but that's succubus. That, that's, that's an emotional drain, right? That's why those relationships are quote-unquote bad. However, DJ, did you have other insights than what I just gave right there about what you were saying? You know, it's funny that you should mention that because um, at one point in the story, as we speak about it, we know that Kevin is as narcissistic as he is. And you have to imagine that this vampire, Mad, as, as they have her <laughs> written, or Marissa, she, it almost feels like that's her feeding preference, right? Or if I was a predator and I was thinking about it, if I am the narcissist of the narcissist and I could get you to do anything, I wonder if I could break another of my kind. And so I will take this juice. And the reason why I say that is because... Well said. Right? One of the things about it that follows up afterwards is, remember, Kevin's got this guy named Mitch. He's that asshole friend, much like Chris Pratt in that movie, Wanted, <laughs> where you know, he's banging your girlfriend, but he's saying, bro, you got to get your game in. You double tap yet? Double tap. You know, you slept with her, but you're sleeping with the woman afterwards as well? Nah, man, if you ain't doing that, you ain't doing it right. And, and the reason why I'm bringing that up is because Mitch being as much of an asshole and cocksure of himself as he is at one point the story leads where you know both kevin and matt end up going and marissa end up heading over to a club and mitch is there and uh mitch is an entire asshole the entire point and she completely accepts it as well and both of them sneak off to the bathroom to do that dance that everyone doesn't want to know about especially if you're in love with her and he busts into the room and he they're they're doing that dance and he just he wails on mitch to no end up until of course uh tragedy happens uh, she falls to the beast at one point, probably either out of arousal or otherwise, and uh, they have to end up cleaning the body. But why I bring that up is because it seems like having Mitch around and knowing that there's another one who's just as either narcissistic or a fresher flower, so to speak, to feed off of, uh, just seems like her MO to me. It just seems like her feeding preference, and it always seems like she always wants to top off a little bit. And what that also should let you know is... From a perspective as a reader, as a mortal, as a human being who's reading this, it's, it's of course it sounds horrible. This is a game about personal horror. But imagine someone like her, this vampire, who's just feeding off and just needs to feel the next big thing. And it's like, I'm here. I'm draining it completely. I'm done with him. Move on to the next. Move on to the next. Move on to the next. And there's like no difference there. Like you almost don't even feel the difference in the slide between both. Uh, up until, you know, the only thing that even gives you an idea that she was interested in Kevin at this moment was that uh, she looks at him and goes like, whoops. We gotta get this body out of here. <laughs> and, that, and then even that scene that you're talking about, that brutal, she's the one who kills him. Right? That's that's the point yep. to note. She decimates this Mitch guy. And it's it's so frightening uh, to, to even think about it. Because up until this point, you've done all this reading. It's Kevin's night in the life and what has happened. And he's showcasing everything. There's a lot that he goes into. And some of it I want to make sure that, that we hit on. Like, for instance, he talks about observing vampires and what it looks like to find them. And he says, the trick to spotting a vampire... Go ahead, Mike. Well, no. I don't want to derail you. I'll, I'll, I'll throw it in there after. I'll okay. So the, the trick to spotting a vampire for him was he realized that you're in all these spots and all these places that are just seemingly clubs to you. And that if you're not a fan of it, like, he goes to all these clubs and plays the game. That's the sort of where the narcissistic motif, period. And everybody kind of dances in this a little bit in life where you think, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to go to the club. I'm young. I am Ben. Let's do it. Put on my best shoes and go see if I like it or not. And you head out. You put your best face forward and you step out and see what you got. 
And that's what he did and found out he was damn good at it. It was a scene, right? The literal definition of a scene queen. And that's what Kevin is. However, Kevin realizes it's hollow as he's with Marissa. Nothing he does feels the same when he's not with her. And so when he starts going around, and, and without her there, he starts paying attention. And one thing he notices is how you spot a vampire in any of these places is watch the people who keep glancing at the door looking around they're not paying attention to the concert or the music or even at the bartender they're glancing around seeing who's looking at them like there's a dirty pleasure that they're kind of indulging right seeing something they shouldn't and then they look back to the one person that everyone is flocking around usually in tandem it's like all everyone's paying attention to what this person's doing or how they look or what's going on always is the best looking person in the room that's the one who's sitting there but how he says it it's in a way to say you pay attention where the attention flow is going based on who's sucking it up who is demanding it easily who's doing it well without it being a performance so this isn't someone on stage singing this isn't any of that right that's what I felt they were getting to with that which made it rather interesting um so first of all I want to say 100% agree with you the biggest thing I took away from from Kevin's story is that they are born they are not necessarily made or it's not intentional because he seemed like one before his experience with his lover to me seemed like a predator um and and, and it's stated in, in a couple of different ways right um but i also got this impression while reading kevin's story that we were getting uh we were doing the the, the thing they do in film where you jump back and forth in time and the parts that were handwritten yep. he wrote while he was experiencing uh, this lover. And the parts that are typed are him cataloging his search for her, right? Um, and the, the biggest... Good catch. The, the biggest thing that I came away with was like, if I'm her, this person is... This person is somebody I want to embrace. I assumed that she did embrace him. But then where did she go and why? She's got the little girl. We don't know if the little girl is a, is a vampire. I kind of figured she was, but it doesn't say. It doesn't give us a clear clear picture. Um, But this person uh, kills for her once and helps her dispose of a body twice. He's already the type that she is. Why would she leave? And it just left, it left me with this this thing like are they trying to tell me something about the fact are they telling me that David like have to push away somebody that gets too close right or are they telling me that yes. that like once somebody's used up for their freshness and not for their actual utility a David wants to move on well we gotta see the thing to remember is they're, they're outlining why they're using it Right, that's what you got to realize. The the diary of of Kevin is to highlight why he was selected for just food. Initially, it was just food, right? That's where we get what are what are the attributes they're looking. At? And the vampires kind of glom on this, right? They said, "Oh, he's pathetic, medicated, vain, needs to be wanted." And feeling he was the peacock, right? That that he was oh to die for. This scrub doesn't know what that means. Word Deva, we know what it is to die for. And he's not it. They love breaking people like that. Why is that? If you analyze it, it's actually much better than you think. If you look at Marissa, she's not attractive. If Marissa wasn't a vampire, she's just average. Now, what I say by not attractive, I mean by the standard of Hollywood. 
Remember somebody who just, you know, if I looked at you and gave you the eyes, you know, that would be it, right? You know, that's all it would take. That We look to Hollywood for people like that because that's what we see. You know, we're supposed to worship them. They're all over the media. That's what people think when they see them. You know, everybody loves, uh, who is it, uh, Captain America, right? America's ass. Remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Now, <laughs> the most virtuous of women were straight panty dropping when it came to the question, hey, would you absolutely... <laughs> It's cheating on your husband. It's not cheating when it was meant to be. <laughs> okay. I guess if it's Steve Rogers, I guess it's all right. You know, we can America's ass, right? And that's how it was. And you laugh and you chuckle, except that's an omission of the truth, right? That's that's a little bit. If nobody was looking, they couldn't get caught, would they? Of course, right? And that's what they're highlighting. But the difference is that Deva, I feel like they're these, what if those same women could do that? Or men, right? Because I've heard them from both. America's ass is, is America's ass, right? Booty Warrior would agree. And the point is that if you could do anything to get that, what would you do? Well, it's because we put people in an adulterous fashion, right? This is the idol of what we want, and they cease to be people when you do that. And no one knows that better than the deva, because they're the beast that cultivates that reaction. You want your prey to want you. It's not good enough that they find you attractive. It's not good enough that they give you a glance. They have to have you. That's what you want, because you hunt by not right you being there should be all you need to draw your victim to you and you don't want to scare your victim off no 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 you want your victim to want to give everything to you their attention their world to make sacrifices to be in your presence to nearly worship you hell to worship you and why you need that that's an extreme addictive response that a healthy person is not going to give you and understand what they're saying so kevin is a narcissist he has emotional issues. He is heavily medicated. He has definite reasons of, of, of like feeling rejection would be a huge thing to this guy. He couldn't handle that. And he even admits that, right? That's like everything he cultivates and what he does. He can't be rejected by his job, which is why he got into being a stockbroker. All pretty much what he hints to. It's not what he wants to do. It's what he feels he had to do to keep this status, right? He sees himself as being this amazing incubus type lover that he, he has to be. Because this is how you hold hold it down, right? And to have the ass that kills and the abs that are, you know, everything that he is, is all hollow. Time removes that from him. Um, one baby and one marriage, and this Kevin becomes a realist. And what does he have left but his job at that point, right? We all know this. People like that tend to be at their prime. At their prime. They've peaked. And of course they think they're most attractive. They're most self-confident. That's what they have there. But if you're that person, and I think it's a very real way to write this, you don't necessarily feel you're in your prime when you're in your prime. You have good days and bad, and when they're good, man, you rock it. But when it's bad, nah, you don't feel that you're 100% pretty down to earth. But that's not the person they're talking about Kevin is. Kevin's near delusional. But he caught that about himself, right? Hence why you said he's insightful in writing it down. But when you think about the vampires talking about him, their seduction method is no different. Look sexy. Get them hooked. Use them. Right? Have an obsessive whirlwind romance that, that's necessary. But you leave them when they clearly, quote-unquote, do not love you. I.e., when they're stale, when it's same old, same old, you need to leave. That's the key to any good party, right? Know when to leave the room. When the thrill is gone, you need to leave before that feeling is felt to leave a good impression. Now, why is that? Everything to be why they're looking for her. Think about it from a predatory sense. Oh, I'm done with you for now. I've lived out my joy. I don't need to keep you around because I don't need you, but you need me. And most importantly, it's not just about blood. 
If I leave you wanting more and I leave, you're always looking for me. And who doesn't like the feeling of being wanted? Right? Is the impression. And you get that the people who think that way are ideal deva. You can't help but seduce, right? So, it's a question for both you guys. So, what do you think it is about deva that keeps them from gathering a cult of personality? Because I I read... I, I can't recall. I might be wrong with like one note, noteworthy exception, but I don't remember any particular character of any age, right, listed in any of these stories that like had a a crowd of fawning, adoring fans, even if the fans weren't aware of one another, there isn't like one of them who is just emotionally vampiring a large group of people. It seems like everybody dances between one or two subjects at a time. Is that about intensity? So, so how boring is it, do you think, for really superstar rock groups to be worshipped as a group? How boring do you think Oh, that I'm is? sure they get tired of it after the first year. Right? Like, what's a really big group? Like, let's take, uh, let's take Queen Motley for instance. Motley oh, Crue, sure. You could do Queen back in the day. Like, these, these names are household names. But Queen was Queen, and everybody loves them worldwide, but really, it's Freddie Mercury. Right, that's that's really who's the most popular, the most sensational. That's the one they want out of the group. And that person draws a crowd based on who they are as an individual that is not just the music he did. Now, the music is part of it, but his lifestyle, his day in the life, who he was, people couldn't get enough of him the more they knew about him. But no one else in the band you really saw take that level of fandom, right? Reason being, and the point I'm making, is that when you're part of a group and everybody worships that group, it's not you, it's your talent. Right? And then that is a separate thing. When I love your talent, who cares about the individual? Keep making music, monkey. That's what you're here to do. We love your music. Keep doing it. It entertains me. It thrills me. I feel some type of way. But you are secondary. But you as a person? Oh, that's different and definitely more well, interesting. Well, so it's the, it's, the, it's the power dynamic. If they, draw, if they draw a crowd to themselves, at some point, they're serving the crowd. As opposed to the crowd serving them. Whereas if they keep those circles tight, they always stay on top of the emotional, like, push-pull? I will use Requiem to help explain this even better. Think of Chicago's Solomon Birch. Mm -hmm. If you think about how Solomon Birch is even written by the authors who had him in the novel, Solomon Birch is a very dynamic and insidious character because everyone's drawn to Solomon, including the prince. They can't help but be drawn to him. And it's not always sexual, although Solomon does cut a very dark-esque figure. Often reminded me of, uh, it could have been somebody Clive Barker wrote about, I feel. He fits that motif. And Longinus, the cult of Longinus, right? The church, mm -hmm. it definitely has that feel as well. Um, a lot of their blood rites and rituals, you know, higher than But the point is that Solomon isn't trying to rock an image that's drawing you in, but you want Solomon's approval. You want him to notice you. You want him to say you're okay. I believe Solomon's the one that has the claw of the beast. That's not its name, but it's like that wicked claw that he has as a symbol of office. And then there's the golden mask that he has right. there for his for the ego of his church. Those are not typical, but that's what he has. And when they bring them out, they're the people who serve those offices to bring them out. What are they really bringing out? You're bringing out an item and it's on a pillow and who cares? However, it's everything to them. It's everything to that group, to that covenant. Because it is part, they're a part of Solomon. It's his personality that brings them in, not Longinus. It's who Solomon is. He uses a medium 
so that they could feel comfortable in speaking it. It's a common language, but ultimately they're worshiping his glory. We are nothing if we didn't stand near this deva. If we weren't in his orbit to do his bidding to know what he wanted, to anticipate what he wanted, we wouldn't be anything. But in the back of their head, we're predators too. And he's doing that to other vampires who are battling that constantly. And so what they focus on is to double down and say, no, 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 we're here because, you know, we're, we're, we're part of the spear. That's the spirit of the no, no, no. You are not here just for that, right? Um, most notable is the prince himself that has written checks for Solomon to survive. Why? Why has the prince allowed Solomon to violate and do things and, and, and allow Solomon to oppose him and challenge him when it'd be so easy and a lot of people don't even like Solomon? at the same time behind closed doors so well the answer is real simple when you think of it in terms of this book he isn't even aware of just how deep they're drawn to him and need him in their life but he provides the entertainment the nightly entertainment that they need in the requiem they need him there in night society they need someone to hate and to love at the same time he's both nemesis and mentor for everybody and he's a great character for that well written well delivered the book here talks about marissa which as far as i'm concerned she might as well be the mother of monsters they refer to in this book mm. i submit to you gentlemen evidence b right we drop down to looking at the picture of actual kevin having sex with marissa right they do have a photo of it it's done tastefully but there's imagery that you have for it number one it's the look of kevin himself He's hanging on to a body that is cold, dead, and smiling. Marissa is pale as pale can be, and she's blurred because that's the effect of vampires and cameras and Requiem, right? She's smiling like she's elated, and that's great. But when you combine it with Kevin's words about what it was like to sleep with her, it's dead, cold flesh to begin with that magically becomes the best sex he's ever had. He had sex like he was 17 again, filled with hormones and blah, 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 blah. This is all what the Beast is projecting. The Beast wants Kevin... And this is, I hope this explains to you, Mike. This Deva, the succubus, is devouring the worship that Kevin can give it. Marissa isn't Marissa anymore when she became a Deva. She became this thing, this void, that has to devour the emotions of those who seek her. She essentially can never be filled. And in the moment, this is when they both share an ecstasy, right? It's, it's a tit for tat. He gets to, well, I guess he gets to have sex. He gets to ejaculate. He gets to do the whole thing. That makes sense worth it. But what's most important is that Kevin is also experiencing something he's never had before. He's identifying a higher level of being, of almost a spiritual pursuit from being with her. But it was only got there because his own mortal emotions are poorly developed to care about his partner. And the beast is forcing him to develop it. But develop it in a form of worship and addiction is what it's doing. It's hammering home to make him the ultimate blood doll. He can't help but want her. And after this act of sex, that's it. And so I give you that she knows that. She damn well knows it, that she broke him at this point. Her conversation with him talking about how, um, I like how you lied to her. And he's referring to his girlfriend and said, oh, you were, you were late helping a friend. There was some excuse like that. And she goes, your tone. That's the important part. Your tone was 100% believable. She believed you. Oh, says the pot calling the kettle black. She herself, a dime a dozen she's had to lie to people for how long? And of course she knew he landed it perfectly. That's the moment Kevin became not just a victim. Is when she realized, oh, he really is a natural. And this, this is a gem. But she still had to have him. She had to conquer him. And when he gave himself to her, 
And I do mean he gave himself to her. He did. Here's this picture. And on that picture, it terrifies me every time I see it. Because I don't see a naked woman. Sure, certainly that's what the body is. But look at how pale it is. Look at how she's leaned back and she's 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 into him in that regard. But the way she is, the discoloration makes it to where she's not of this world. Oh, yeah. She's not of this oh, yeah. world. Supernatural. Right? And he's he's filled with life. He's there. His intensity, his pride. He's, oh, yeah, she's mine. I'm really, oh, right? It's primal. He covets it. That that apex that all lovers have when there's, it's a form of mixed conquest, right? Where you, the roles interchange during that love play of where you're mine and I'm yours and vice versa. It's probably the few times that equality can be expressed in such a passionate method, but it is so gothic romance tragic because you're really watching the vampire feed on the level that matters. This is where the emotional hooks are in and who Kevin is no longer matters. It's what Kevin becomes this point forward because now, to Marissa after this moment, the thrill's gone. All the hardship of pretending to be this interested, quippy, witty. She didn't use her powers on him, I I hypothesize. She didn't do it at all up to this point. She's relying on her wit. She's relying on a mystery. She's she's trying to see if she could seduce the narcissist. If she could bring him over a bit. What she doesn't realize is the Beast didn't make that deal. Just having the ability to have majesty, that animal magnetism, it shows through. It makes one curious as to who you are. And so he had to know more. He even says that, right? At the gas station, she's walking out with some piss water six-pack because it's all she can afford, <laughs> and it clearly looks that way, right? But it's also cleverly contrived. She went in and bought a poor six-pack to walk out because she's hunting at a gas station. Why is she hunting at a gas station, guys? Well, who knows? But the point for is here's... Yeah, yeah, for funsies. But here's Kevin, and he's out here, and he's like, man, why is she going home? You know, And then he says, I'm remiss. To let you go home, drinking such pathetic... A woman with, with your looks, come on. I at least got to buy you something worth having. There's some top-shelf good imports, and let me go get you some real stuff, and let's talk a little more and get this going. I can't let you do this. I'm, I have money even if you don't. And she's like, oh, okay. And lets him do that. Because to her, I'm just going to get my blood out with this idiot. But then it develops because he's able to keep up with the wit. So we realize that Kevin is showcasing what a Devo wants. He's not just attractive, he has a bo- he has a brain in his head, and he has the charisma to be a go-getter, to be able to attract someone of her caliber. However, even Kevin said, you know, I can't, he tried describing her twice. And the second time is the most telling, where he just, he basically says, you know, she's got curls, but you can tell she paid to have her hair straightened, right? She's like average, you know, of, of that, but you know, not to me. And, and, you know, I just can't describe her properly, because the truth is, Kevin can't admit he can't see it even in the writing that she was below the woman he was with by his standards. But we've, we've all seen that, right? We've all had that bro who met some lady and for whatever reason, he's head over heels and everybody else is looking at each other and looking at him and looking at her and looking at each other again. And it's like, are you you sure, man? I mean, exactly. Yeah, we, call movie, <laughs> we call that movie Saving Silverman when the three of them were like, what's happening to my buddy? <laughs> right, right. But the point of that there, that insidious twist that they do well in Requiem in this book, is that they point out that, yeah, we've all been there, so we all can relate to the things that are going on to Kevin. How does that quite make the vampire? Because we know the level of insidiousness. She's going to kill him. She's going to bleed him dry to feed a bestial hunger and satiate every desire that she wants, and Kevin's going to give it to her. He's not going to be a victim here. 
He willingly walked forward to volunteer it, and that's the scary part about Adeva. That she barely has to put any effort in to get this reaction from him. But yet, Kevin's showcasing he's more than just me. To her, for what Adeva looks for. I didn't say he's a real person in this regard. I mean, to me, Kevin's really kind of a, he's a bad guy. By, by any description. He's a lot of emotional growth to go through. He's a lot of healing to go through. He needs help to get an even level to realize the value of who he has and what he is and who he is as a person. And But the David doesn't care because he fits that predator motif that they look for in Cult of It, just like you said, Mike. But when you get to that photo and see that he feels that, oh, now I've got her. And you realize, no, you don't. You don't, buddy. This is a seal of the deal, the nail in the coffin. It's like, wow. And it basically defines the horror of the book from this photo onward, right? Because once you get here, it's like the glasses are off. The rose-colored glasses are done. You can tell that once she allowed herself to be in a photo in such a position, she's losing herself in the in the ego of the fact that one day she might be in a folder to be wanted for someone to come across and see, oh, who was Kevin involved with? You don't think she knew? that Kevin was writing about her, she fucking wanted Kevin to write about her. She needs Kevin to write about her because this person lives for the glory of who she is, right? I'm glorified now in death more than I ever was in life and I hope the party never stops. That's where she's at. I would describe her as a vampire that has to be put down. Even the other uh, vampires in this book, the Deva who are commenting on the works that's here, they more or less give that impression that she would not make it uh, for, for any level-headed sense. She's an abnormality of a typified deva. The danger of a young deva, maybe, or maybe an old deva who just stopped caring. That's right. what's there. Um, I got But a bit on that. Just Go one ahead. more little thing, and I know we're spending a lot of time on Kevin and, and, and M, Marissa, whatever her name was. The sister. Fellas. Help me understand the sister, because... I feel and I see what you're describing about this villainy and about Marissa projecting her beast onto Kevin and twisting all of those feelings that he have, has about self and putting them on her head instead, right? She's taking all that love he has for himself and the infatuation he has with his own image and all his vanity. She's taking it off of him and put it on like a pope. What's going on with the kid? Because if if she's, if she's that self-absorbed, if she is running through various communities plucking a few men from here and then moving on to the next situation you know whoever she's got to take who is this little girl that she's dragging around what is that what is that telling is us dragging her around I, don't, I don't know it's not clear but what because, is it telling us about her that she's even there why would you bother well the thing about that though is like look how it shows up i think the best thing that was set up about it is number one the name esma i believe is what they called her right it doesn't even matter all that really matters is the fact that when Kevin shows up to Marissa's house, there's a little girl with crayons. She's like, what up, bro? How awkward uh -huh. is it in the first place when you know you're going to do the horizontal tango, right? And there's this little girl there. And the best part about it is no matter what happens, in most people's moral mind of today's standard, oh, no kink shaming or anything like that, but <laughs> you don't get it on with the little girl in the room. But Marissa makes it so that she draws him away so they could get it on. And even more so than that, he knows that while they're getting it on, he sees the pitter-patter of the shadow of her feet crossing their bedroom. I'm almost certain at this point in time, that little girl was either kin to Marissa and or her sire. And she's like, listen, this guy's, this guy's pretty much, you got to check out his stamina. All right, let me put my ear against the wall and let's see what you're talking about. Just because she could flaunt it and show it off. And I'm pretty sure that's why the little girl stayed around. 
Now, okay, cool. those those two modes, I'll, I'll form that more. To me, Mike, I definitely got she was the sire as well. And here's the here's the impression I had. We know from from previous reviews that it became a modern thing for the vampires in the Night Society to forbid embracing children. It's not what they do. But they admit that that wasn't always the case. That it was something that happened and, you know, you should not do that. And the reason being is because, well, it's a child. But not only that, what's torpor for them when they wake up and have trouble with their memories? They're more instinctual to begin with than anything else. So if they could hang on, they're barely hanging on in the first place. And at some point, they're going to let go. However, how might that child vampire fight that loss of who they are or what they could be? I very easily... When I, well, to give you, to so you can be in this, in this box of what happens, Interview with the Vampire highlights what happens to a child over mm-hmm. time when your life is feeding and being a beautiful doll and you're never going to be a full woman. What might that be like? Even if you're a boy, it's the same thing. You'll never know what it's like to be an adult and, and, and a man in that regard. However, both understand what it is to be a predator. That's the one thing they could latch on to is that they're a better predator than even the adults. 100%. But you'll never ever know what it's like to seduce a lover to that caliber. You'll never ever know what it's like to be a mother or to be someone's child. You can't. And as the days tick on and become months, become years, become centuries, this becomes a thing you let go. But what does it become after that? You covet or it's just hunting or it's just feeding and it's all you know. And that's the that's the dark side of a child being what they are and they're better off dead in that regard. However... Marissa isn't. And so that's why I think, well, this is a child who found touchstones by making children. If she makes a chill, then I'm going to tell you something even scarier. I think she is a child, but at what age? Who knows when she was made? But we know a bloodline, don't we, that's in this book. It's called Erzabeth, right? It's made off of Elizabeth Bathory. We're just going to give it the short, short version it needs because, yes, there's tons of info in there. Well, not tons, but... It talks about where it came from and who and why, but it's based on Bathory, right, is where it comes from. And there's sensationalism that goes on it, but their weakness is the important part. Of all the vampires, I believe it's every 50 years they're actually alive, they age too. Yep. Yep. Now look at that child again. If that child knows that one day, one day, she will be a woman, and it's possible that her immortality isn't locked into her physical body, then... Her behavior, as DJ described, becomes a study of what she wants to do later. However, how many years has she existed already? Is the danger here, right, in that physicality? Was she embraced at that age? Was it before? And if it's 50 years for her to age two, then you begin to understand why she might have grabbed Marissa. And how many mistakes before? You know? And that's the case. Like, to be ridiculous about it, I imagine a three-year-old is pretty enraged and instinctual when you know when you think about it right or or maybe there's a mistake where a somehow even scarier an infant was born from a woman being embraced before her time and this infant was there but somehow the the requiem transferred to that because the existence is cruel in the world in the world chronicles of darkness you know what i mean and what if that did happen and the vampires chose not to kill it and somehow they could communicate to it on an instinctual level to keep it going so on and so forth right this becomes a very very dangerous prospect i'm not saying that's what happened but that could be what's going on with that child the other one could be very simply what if marissa is feeling the maternal instincts and she truly wants to connect with that side she never got to have what if she never had children but here's a child she can cultivate and grow but teach her only the monstrous aspects that she can 
because motherhood, even to her, is not understood. How could she? She's a killer, and she's an immortal. She can impart to be the perfect vampire, but really, how are you going to be the perfect human woman? You, you have no idea other than to observe. Now, just to skip past this a little bit, and maybe just to, just to sum it up, is skip is a bad term. I think everyone forgets that to be a vampire is not to be human. So you cannot look at them from a human perspective. You have to strain and try to look at them from what a vampire cares about. Blood. Power. Selfishness. It's a power fantasy to be a vampire. And they're not looking from the perspective that it's not wrong or to be judged. They're doing it from the pure aspect that they want and they can versus should they. And when you see it that way, it's another take on it, right? And as a side note, two things I want to hurry up and get here because I know we're on the, we're on the length here. Uh, but number one, to me, Marissa, from looking at the photo and even by description and how she acts, I did think of an actress from an old film that I saw that hit me that might fit who she is. And it's uh, Alice Krieg. Uh, she's the uh, South African actress that played the uh, the role of the mother in Sleepwalkers, that Stephen King film. Yep. Back I remember in the, that movie. Right? She was she was hot in ways that hit you off. Right? I remember seeing that and you were like, man, what a what an odd thing. Because in that movie, remember, the role she played was very uh, dangerous. Because her special breed of what she was was like this weird cat person that can only mate with the, the only mate that was left alive, which was her son. And her, right? She was supposed to get a victim and her son was, she tried to teach her son to hunt, which is why it reminded me of the vampiric aspect of it, even though they weren't yeah. vampires. And bring this new woman in town, or who her son's supposed to seduce over for him to feed on it, for them to basically have offspring to continue their their race. And that was always chilling to me. And she hit me off, but she pulled it off. And then I thought about Marissa even more. And I said to myself, I do know what she looks like, and I do get what Kevin's problem is. He keeps describing that his lust was triggered where his mind was kind of screaming about her the whole time, but he didn't have the will to point it out. And she hits me on those on those levels. There's a lot of movies she's in. I think Silent Hill's another one. Where despite her playing a challenging role of being some sort of fanatic, she still pulls off this strange exoticness that draws you into the role itself. She does well. I think that's the point of the Deva. And his book hammers at home that despite what you may think is safe, they ruin it. And they covet you to come to them for it. Which is a great, great clan for that. Now, life in a club rack. Here's something players can use, and I thought for certain to mention some stuff. They show you how to work a rack in a club, right? A feeding ground, if you will, for those who don't know. You go to a club scene, and yeah, you might pick a target club, and a lot of players are good at that. I'm going to know all the people, the door guy, bribe people, come in. They know me, I feed in the bathroom, or wherever you have it. That's well and good. However, did you know there's a menu that you can have that exists there? Did you guys catch that in the book? No. Yep. Ooh. So there's a section where they show photos, right? Where basically there's a, there's a three-penny upright written on a wall. Oh, it's just yeah, yeah, graffiti. right. Oh, yes, yes. Okay, go ahead, go ahead. Go. Right, so a three-penny upright is a place with lots of uh, hidden nooks and crannies uh, where one can uh, basically enjoy themselves in, uh, in their capacity inside this club. And they're basically letting people know that there's a system of communication they're using for, for, these, the, for well, fellow vampires, for Night Society to come in read these cute phrases that are on the wall like for a good time call someone and that means something and mm. uh, nothing more chilling than when they talk about haunts and why I say it's chilling is apparently horror show if that's written in graffiti on the wall 
What that means is, is that be careful when you feed here because a Nosferatu is watching you somewhere. So if you feel like you're being watched, it's because you are, and they're yeah. they're 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 uh, ringing around doing something. Maybe be on your best behavior. This is fantastic because typically the Nosferatu are the ones who get these cool little throw-ins for the clan, right? Things that made this like internal communication that helps them out, and that's kind of what they do. But this book goes in deep, and they talk about cacophony. Right, this is this is the internal um, news updates, jargon, graffiti, etc. They encapsulate all of this into one thing to say that this is how these vampires communicate with one another. They're hidden in plain sight, using this stuff to communicate to them that we overlook as people. They know how we operate, and how to dodge us, and I think it's cool that they have that in there to showcase that so well because it's not necessarily ownership that the Deva have just that they use it and this is how and this is what it might look like now and you know to add to that though like if you think about it um comparing it to the, because this is the flip side of certain things right this is what makes Requiem unique in terms of how we interpret the information and the reason i say that is because in um in masquerade we were always giving those like hidden messages of graffiti to the nosferatu because we felt all right food they're always watching etc but if you take a look at it from a data perspective, this is just an extension of their beast and their hunting ground. They are so populated all over the place that in order for them to just give the tip to the other person, like, hey, this is what we're going to eat the entire time, it's that language just spread out. But it's from the perspective of a better hunter, I feel. Right? Whereas before, you're doing it to kind of keep safe, watch out, monsters over here. You're doing <laughs> it from a data perspective of like, yo, we're coming to feed at this spot. Don't worry about him. This is what's happening. And I feel it's, it's a lot... It's different in that way, much the same way that we were speaking. What flips the script in in Requiem? I don't feel the Nosferatu are as scary as they seem to be, or as hideous, because the the monstrousness is already on display. But when we have that image once again of of Marissa and and Kevin, the fact that he willingly gives himself up to a monster, he's not running away from the monster; he's walking to the monster. Only goes to highlight, you know, certain aspects of Requiem, especially when it comes to the data. Now, um, to to develop this out further, when we when we're saying her name's Marissa, we're not even certain that's what her name is. She right. and and they point that out. Well, yeah, because so she might... gave a she gave a different name when he asked, and a similar name to the little sister, as if they were actually sisters, siblings from the same parent. And I I couldn't tell. Is she talking about the kindred family thing? Like they go on to explain later in the text, is she just lying to him, or is Marissa an alias, or are these two different people? Because the, the so way that, here we go have, ahead, go ahead, go ahead. No, 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 finish, please. Well, I just reading through Kevin's account and then reading some of the stuff that's in the margins, I wasn't one hundred percent sure that Marissa was her or some other vampire that Kevin was in pursuit of, or some vampire that the characters making commentary in the comments were in pursuit of, and so we're looking at a narrative from like multiple levels. Um, but all yes. because Kevin and the, this woman he's infatuated with interact with this person that the hunt now, is actually. We saw this before. This isn't new. The Venture Clan book did the exact same thing. They speak to an elder. We're not certain what that elder's name was or who it was, but he said, you can call me what you like. That's what it dumbed down to. What's in a name? What does it really matter? And I hypothesize, what does it mean to not have a name to a monster? really to anyone a name is a label you give me a label and it can mean when i was in my prime in my glory days 
Like I could be called Achilles if I told you that I was the I'm an, I'm an, I was an immortal and my birth name was Achilles. You should take fifteen steps back and hope I'm not near a blade. That's if you believe in an immortal. But if I look like I do, you're gonna be like, "You were Achilles, bro. Were you cheated? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, <laughs> is he supposed to be a golden <laughs> Greek god with like this dipped in the river sticks and everything else?" And be like, "Yeah, that's the hype." But are you gonna take the risk? That's kind of that point, right? You're judging a book by its cover. I we love the poets and scalds for a reason. They could talk and spin a good yarn and make things seem better. But what if there is truth to it? Typically, those stories do have truth to it. And are you willing to roll the dice? And vampires milk it on any side of the coin. Whether you're Venture, Deva, or Nosferatu, you milk the idea of the legend of just being a vampire. You milk that in the mindset of you don't. It's part of the masquerade. You tell a mortal you're a vampire, you're insane. It's there, right? You're milking the legend. And that's what they're doing here. This dude isn't aware if it's Marissa or not. That's the name that he's kind of attributing to sure. That's sort of what's said. But that's what makes it even more chilling. What if it was a series of women that did this to him? You know what I mean? Like they know the look that they have to have and they're passing him around was a thought I had as well. Because the personality... Go ahead. Right, because even then, this goes back to the original first page of the intro where perception is everything. It's about the story. It doesn't matter who she is today or was. She's frozen in time for what, how she presented herself to him. And if Marissa's what he knows her that, then Marissa's what he's getting the entire time. Marissa's what he's longing for, regardless of how many other identities she may or may not have assumed. And, and, and you know she did her job well because he won't accept any other reality. Right, exactly. Now... And that persists even after his death, right? Which is interesting. Now, to, to roll this on, since we know they're capable of doing this, well, then it's like, well, wow, what are their origin story? Well, first and foremost, I'm going to tell you, they're anti-old world in this book, right? They literally have a document where it says, fuck the old world uh, that is in it. And what, what it's referring to is the fact that, you know, you can't confirm who they are or who they were because they're by word of mouth. And if you trust the Deva, you're a damn fool. That they're, they're manipulation incarnate in a lot of ways. Like, they're snakes in the Garden of Eden, as it's, uh, it's said multiple times. They're, they're everything they want to be and want you to want them to be, but who they really are is a very cleverly guarded secret, because that would be admitting that they are not the gods they're trying to give to you. And you want them to, they want you to think they are what they are, because the reality is much more or less, is how it comes down to, or we'll say, horrific. Now, that doesn't mean they don't have a story they'll tell you, like, you get several different tales in this book, and I'm going to let you know that will wet your whistle if you're looking for historic. But I'll warn you, they go all the way back to Sumer. They're talking right. about the city of Ur when it comes here. And whenever you hear somebody go back that far, just get up and leave the room. Just, it, you can't confirm it. They ain't going to say nothing that's good. You know what I mean? There is nothing you can say that should make you believe that the person you're talking to is not spinning a good tale because they're really out for something completely different. But they want you to believe in them. That's the point. And if they can get you to believe that story, they can get you to believe any story. And that's and that's the impression they give when they retell it, right? The other fact is, you'll get your powers in here. You're going to get your Deva powers in here, specific. You're even going to have your um, your highs and lows of what it means to be um, a Deva at different times. Meaning they give you night and a life a couple times in this book to sort of survey what it is because we're talking from the point of poor old Kevin a lot in this book which is great to get the perspective of how a Dave of Vampire might choose a victim what that victim would feel like gives the storyteller an idea of how to portray a victim that's something you've never seen up until now 
They even actually give you what it would be like to be selected as a child and what a young child might feel toward their sire afterward when it's done good, even though their sire is a douchebag. That's mm-hmm. that you get all that in in there and it gives you that perspective. Before I would say it's not been done up until now, which is amazing, and I think this helps everybody uh, that plays the vampire at all. Um, however, there is a part in here that I I'll be honest, I saw it, I just overlooked it. And when I saw it, it slammed me in the nose. I was like, wow, this is kind of, okay. It says, if men can fuck it, they hate it. And I was like, where is this coming from? Do you remember that section? Yeah, I remember it. It says, and I quote, men fuck weaker men in prison uh, to make them know their place. Men fuck women and have uh, have spent the last 10,000 years keeping the bitches down. We were gods, and this is referring to Dave. Obviously, this whole part it says we were gods, and when we lay when we lay with men, uh, they were they were dreamers, and we were worshipped, and everything was great and golden, right? And go on and on and on and so forth. And where did that change, and what happened, and what went on? When you lay with a god, and this is the part that David can't see. When you cross that threshold, when you lay with dogs, you wake up with fleas. Do you get that? Yes. This this is what it means. The Venture do it best. The Venture aren't in the business of sleeping with their food. Who does that? We rule over them. That's our role. We are rulers. We're kings of them. And they know their place. We don't... I'll choose a vampire to be my king or queen, as I so choose. And by the way, they'll interchange. I'll have both sexes. I'll have a king and a queen. And of course, until that lofty time when uh, we were able to choose both in one, because that is the deific body... Of, of a god and goddess back in the day was having both gender and one, right? The supreme role. And that's, that's the truth looking back in ancient cults. This is another thing to go for. You might do that if you're an ultimate hedonist. All right, great. Go for it. Do you. But what this tells me is that the Deva feel that the power shift has happened because they lost their power the moment it became normal for men to seek these deific, super-powered figures that were desirous for them because of the patriarchy and they hammer this home all over in sections in this book but they also do it so you can see how to manipulate it best none so more than that picture where it's obviously quote unquote marissa who kills mitch right they have Mm -hmm. that photo in there and describe how she slammed and crushed his head when one hand against the wall in the bathroom and he's bleeding and he falls down the side of the toilet and he's terrified to see it, but also wants to sleep with her right then and there. Take her right there. What hubris. He just said he saw her take this guy one-handed, very fit guy, slam his head against the wall and crush. This dude's twitching in the ground. And then graphically describes grabbing his head and twisting it like a top slowly. Pop. She, she right. did it slowly. She didn't have to, but she chose to. Because this entity, whatever she is, is a monster. She's a real deal monster, a wolf in sheep's clothing, and she let the curtain down for him to see exactly who she was and to test one theory. Just how good is he hooked on that good good? Mm-hmm. How good is she? And the way they portrayed it, she's naked, she's got these fishnet stockings on, and she's enjoying the kill. The blood's right near her, she's sitting on a toilet, doesn't care, and she's look, kind of licking the afterthought of the, the blood off of her hand. And this dude wants to 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 be to sleep with her to mount her. Basically, is the word and verbiage he uses, and gets graphic with it. But you know, terrified. 
he can't do that. He can't act on it. He's impotent with fear. And he, he stands up to basically say, what? What the hell? What's going on? And like you said earlier, DJ, she just looks at him and goes, oh, shit, I fucked up. She puts on this show. <laughs> Which, oh, no, I couldn't stop. Oh, what am I going to do? What am I? She's got to play to the role. She's got to make it seem like she needs help. And then this dude's like, oh, oh I don't know. I don't know. We got to get this body out of here or I'm screwed. And he goes, and I know she didn't mean the cops. And you're sitting here going, you don't think she knew. Slamming his dude's head against the wall wasn't going to cause some static. She could have stopped. Why didn't she? She slowly twisted his head around like a top. Now, unless the, the, the author totally lost himself in trying to be cool with it, that wasn't a frenzy. That's not a frenzy. That's a sadistic no. murder. Right? That's somebody who enjoyed her power over it. And with the with the way it was, it was the anti-patriarchy writing and speech to this photo lets me further know. That's the intent is to hammer it home. It's to say, when you're a vampire, you're free. You're not bound by this lie that they want you to have. But everyone's deluded with the lie. So why let it go? Because in olden times, we were worshipped in temples. And we lay with them. They would give us riches. They would give us armies. Look at Sparta. Nothing happened without the approval of the of those who spoke with the fates. Right? We need that before the armies move. The kings won't allow it. Well, what power and control? Who really was in power at that point? You know, and that's that's up for conjecture, but clear to me that you see that, and they knew that. They even talk about when they were in Rome, and they served a similar role that we reviewed. That the whole clan, that's what they did. About that, and the last controversial piece, because I love giving this Easter egg. Did you know that the Julii were Deva? What? What? Now, now, this document in here, I'll let you believe what you like. You can draw your own conjecture. But I thoroughly love how they try to discredit their own writing, right? Where, basically, they talk about one S. Marcellarius Corbulo. Now, I bring this up because the document they refer to, we know who Corbulo is. I like wax poetic in a guy forever today. He was such a hedonist, he didn't seem to be a Julii. But yet, he was Propinky. I will tell you 100%, he was Roman as far as I'm concerned. I was Roman as fuck. He was down to be what he was, right, with his decadence and the level and depth that he went to. But he was also all the talk of the town. Everyone wanted Corbulo at their parties. Everybody wanted to be at a party that Corbulo threw. He had this. His only comp- competition was Julia Commodore. And I would argue that Commodore, she, 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 she was a deva, right? But the deva get muted in that room. I wonder why. I wonder why that happened. And then you read this where they said, you know, on a far enough timeline, when you look at the way Requiem does vampires... It's possible a vampire is just a vampire is just a vampire. And then we begin deviating the more populous we get because, you know, my... And Mike, you're not me. DJ, you're not like me. We're not like each other. However, we're still humans, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're all yep. still vampires. So our, if our personality is the only difference of distinction, why is it so far-fetched that we wouldn't come up with our own clans that would be like us and have a similar running trait like us because we are the charisma that the clan feels through the blood and the blood tie? And there is a way that anybody playing a Requiem Vampire can do that and make their own bloodline. So why is it far-fetched to believe that when you have clans and with so many bloodlines, that really what you have are the most populous bloodlines that they're representing that may have been closer to, the, to one than we want to give them credit for? Because we want to label, we want to make distinctions, and in a long enough timeline, they get to do that and battle for power in-house. And when you look at it that way, it's like they're saying in Requiem, we are one vampiric entity under one house that can't decide who's in charge. And so we make distinctions. We make clan differences. 
we make bloodline differences in the clan then we make covenant differences and we choose to be unaligned and then we're you know there's so many differences and nuances that make it subtle but in reality we're of one group even the nosferatu i really feel is is it a curse to be an us if you choose to be but they let the player run wild with it when you really read how bad it is to be an us not so bad not compared to what it was back in the day right but that's, right. that's classic world of darkness that made that distinction here it's like okay there, there's some oddity there's some bad stuff but really this this seems like a quirk it's like a thing of the blood but not necessarily an all be all and then i look at this again and i say marcellarius huh you want to hammer home that the Julii weren't? And then I th- they go a step further, and they don't say it directly, but I tie what they're saying. The Deva had a root, had an ancient symbol of the owl as theirs, and I said, you know what? It makes more sense, but the way they point out, that okay, let's say they're not the Julii, but it would make sense that they're the children of the Strix. Yes, and even one of their origin stories points to it. But that's something, you know, for our dear readers to take a look at if they're interested in. Exactly. And, and, the passion, the rage, the love. Go and, ahead. And just, just to your point, I don't remember which character it was, but there's a certain point in one of these narratives where the, the speaker says, you know, it's not really clear when the Ventru split off from our clan. But everybody is basically <laughs> us or Ventru or monsters that stalk the night who we need to speak. Right, so even that character uh, kind of suggests that there are there are vampires walking around in the night in Requiem who are old enough to remember when these distinctions weren't so sharp, and when certain groups of vampires just kind of started calling themselves something else, and you have to <laughs> fast forward before there's more obvious, clear differences between the. Right. And now, and now I want to end on a controversial note. I think it's great. It's controversial because Mike, you and me, once again, what we're discussing is sex and romance in a gothic punk environment. <laughs> okay. <laughs> After you read this book, how do you feel about sex and romance in Vampire? It's definitely, it's definitely got its place. But, and it's kind of like what I was telling you and I, we had a side conversation about some other podcast. Um, I do feel like that in order to pull this off as well as they did, it's going to be something that's much harder to teach than it is to do naturally. So if you're if you're a storyteller and you're working with a player or a small group of players or vice versa, and you guys are on that same wavelength where you can make this happen, a story where the sex and the romance fits a theme it, it goes to illustrate something about the setting and about the characters you're portraying then it's great because this book is fantastic but there's a lot of different moments in this text where I could easily see it veering off into Quentin Tarantino Richard Rodriguez uh, Robert Rodriguez territory if it was not being created to serve this theme like if I just walked in on a movie in that in the bathroom scene I would assume it was some kind of grindhouse gore for the sake of violence situation and not something that was teaching me about this now we're, we're, at, we're at something that is like that line that you gotta ride constantly and it's the one thing that I say that the, the companies do well that they understand or I should say let me take that back I don't give the companies credit I, I don't think that really is a company that, that needs to be the authors those who have to give you the quote unquote fluff and deliver it to make you feel immersive sex is part of our world everybody 
Now, I don't know how repressed you want to be, but if you haven't had sex, please have some. And uh, that way you can weigh in on the topic. If it's before you have, then contemplate the infatuation you have and those lovey-dovey feelings you can't explain. It's an almost near obsessive want to hold and be with somebody is there. And that maybe it's a little deeper than that as your tingly bits tingle, right? I only say that because not everybody's the same way and some do wait till marriage, believe it or not, even to this day and age. And I'm not making any distinction. By the way, if you have a child... That is listening to this, shame on you. I mean, with this podcast notorious for being for adults only, I just want to hammer that. I'm not referring to someone who's prepubescent, right? We're referring to mature folks here. And we want to point out something. When you get into romance, why romance titillates you and excites you, whether you're a man or a woman, is because the romantic notion that you can be somebody's everything. Right? That feel-good thing that you can be the knight in shining armor or the woman of somebody's dreams or vice versa. Roles interchange. It doesn't have to be stagnant one gender. And because of that, everyone wants to be the hero. Everybody. Romance gives you that ability. That's often what you see in fantasy when it's the dragon saving the princess, or excuse me, the knight saving the princess from the dragon. Right? That's that element, really, that you're looking at. Right, the horror is that a dragon took her and it's going to take something monumental to get over it. And how possibly can the knight be strong enough? But if his heart is pure and his will is iron and his purpose is resolute, God wills it, spirituality wills it, the powers of love will see him through and then oh, he could rescue the princess, right? Or however you want to put that. That exalting, that need, your interest is in seeing that little guy win is what it comes to no matter what through trials and tribulations. When you add the gothic aspect, it's pointing out that in horror, romance is even better because of what's at risk, right? Your lover of the moment, take the vampire, right? We could look at Dracula. And for a moment there, the pure one, right, is Jonathan Harker. He wants his Mina. He's at work. But Dracula is actually in love with Harker for a bit because Dracula has many lovers, Right, It's not just women, it's also men. Because to that entity, it doesn't matter. Man or woman, it will have what it wants. And that's the draw of being a vampire. Who doesn't want that power? Who doesn't want the ability that when you see it and want it, you take it? That's everybody. It doesn't matter who you are. You don't like being told no as an adult. You covet more than you appreciate and you love. That's the will challenge in everybody to be a better human being is to accept and be content with what you have and to reach gently forward to hopefully a mutual connection. But in a gothic romance, that's boring. You're not looking to take your time and ask, you know, permissions and blah, blah, blah. Well, I mean, ask permissions, but like you try to seduce, you try to make, you know, the magnificent approaches of Kevin and the efforts and whatever this Marissa is. And in another tale, if this was not gothic at all and and vampires were out of it, Marissa just seems to be a woman who did her best to present her best face to try to land Kevin, and in a right moment, because of wit and a moment of opportunity, it hits it off into a whirlwind romance that tragically isn't going to work out because, Kevin, you have everything in the whole life over there, and how could I ever be the woman you want? And then Kevin's triggered. I'm that knight for you, baby. I'm going to keep you because she does have everything. I could let her go, and I could settle for you because you really understand me, and you really need me where she doesn't need me. You could see a story like that, but how boring is that that's so simple. When you add that element of, what if it were a monster that from afar, this this alludes that on a long enough timeline, we've played a seduction game, rinse and repeat, ruining lives, sucking the very life for them, leaving carcasses of people wandering around looking for lost loves and lovers of folks who wake up in cold sweats 
thinking that that door had opened and their lover came home, and maybe they did while they slept in the night and just did to sneak in and watch them to see if they still wanted them. And that's what I think about Kevin. How often does Marissa walk into his life where he can't see her and she takes a peek just to see if he still wants her? And he wakes up wondering if she's still there, but he can't see her because such is her power. And then the moment he wakes up and she sees the tears set in and the tragedy that she's not there and he could have swore he smelt her perfume and that's what woke him up and he's a vampire, she's not there that he thinks maybe maybe today, this morning, is the, is the time he walks into the sun to end his torment. Oh, how she must love that to drink it up because it's the closest that creature can get to love is to know that someone's willing to be that deep because after she seduced him, after she's gluttoned him on her blood and ghouled him, after she's embraced him and that hook's still there, she's waiting for it to wear off because the little girl in her is hoping he does actually love her because she has no idea what it is. And the monster inside her doesn't love. It only covets and takes. This is the dance. This is the dance, bro. I've been trying to show you. this. That All that is in romance and horror, it goes well beyond sex well beyond it and it's it tells of a sickness of the creature and the entity that should be feared in the night it's not the one with potence vanish in a battle axe it's the one that brings everybody to them that we all want to sit and we all want to be near but we never stop to ask what do we want in life because we're always saying i hope tonight is the night they notice me i think that also segues into our next segment right because you know this goes back to original two questions. Can a player use it? Does it portray a vampire in Requiem? And I think it's a marriage hand in hand. What's interesting about that, though, is the following. If you pay attention to how we've normally taken a look at characters or archetypes, when we take a look at Venture, it's easy. You think of, like, for example, the boardroom member, the chairman, right? Where all he was is like, you want control because control is it's better than power. And so you understand how its feeding method is. It's very, it's not that it's not intimate, but it's very, it's something that you could just play off. For most people that wouldn't have an idea to grasp onto would be able to play off. But you have an idea of what you think you should portray in terms of a venture. When you pay attention to what was just mentioned right now in terms of how we've been just gushing over the section on Kevin alone because we feel that's where the most weight is. When I take a look at this, when I think of playing a Deva now, especially after having read that and, and revisiting my feelings, I'm not looking at it from perspective of Marissa. I'm looking at it from perspective of Kevin. Yes. Because if I wanted to play a character who's a Deva, I think about the most toxic relationship I thought about. I'm mentioning an ex-girlfriend's names, but I actually think about it because I think about the very big highs that you, you accelerated on, the passion, the, the lovemaking, everything that just came along with it. And then you think about the bitterness of everything that followed afterwards and how at that moment in time, you were so enamored with this idea that you, you threw away everything for it to just end up in ashes. And then when I think about that feeling, I reverse it and I think, what would I do if I was in her position and role playing that out? And that's how I would picture Deva, which is very different by comparison to how they present the venture in terms of how you can play them. Yeah, um, I guess to, to, to both of your points, like the, the thing that I came away with, and I got to make sure I say this correctly, using sitting in my brain, um, it is normal, or I would expect, right, from somebody who's playing a power fantasy or writing a character or whatever, to want to be attractive, right? Yeah, I'm cool. I have America's ass. Um, <laughs> it's something else that I hadn't really considered in roleplay of any character that I've played to want to have the capacity to want someone else that intensely and on a level that is that genuine. I don't think David can experience that. 
I don't, yeah. I don't. I think that what comes to them naturally is being magnetic and having the whole room orbit around them with little or no effort. And what they are actually chasing that they'll never achieve is wanting somebody else as bad as they can make a whole crowd. Um, and this this book, this book gave me that, and I hadn't. I've never considered it. Well, I will tell you that's that's many of the things there, and I'm I'm proud actually. I, I'm going to say that to you, like I'm proud that you you walk, you took away that because that's uh that's that's not that not that's complexity. It's typically not your go to. You don't you don't enjoy that, right? Because I expect you to say what I'm about to say was that yeah, man, but they got potence and they got celerity <laughs> and they could smash a face and they could be violent. Yes, yes, that's the low hanging fruit. And don't worry, my non. Progressed uh, my, my my early education cane bros. I started there as well. You could easily gravitate to that, especially if you're not comfortable with the whole romance angle and maybe looking for that. But remember what you can still draw doing that. And all the action films you watch, especially the fight films, you're always drawn to the character who's a badass who has to go through tragedy and hardship to make it worthwhile when they face that big super nemesis champion uh, to get over it. But you got to take pride and stop and notice that there is still a romantic kick that's going on there. It's a love of the purity of fight. It's that struggle. You're still in a power fantasy no matter how you see it. And where we're going to have a different variety, that's still very Deva. That's in there as well. That that drive is there. Now, you can play and interchange with these relationships as much as you want. The book definitely highlights a lot of that. And the main book definitely goes over that quite a bit. And, uh, you know, fight styles when are included in Requiem as well. They don't leave anything back and on the sideline. And you should check that out and definitely explore it. I'm, yes, if you think I'm winding down, it's because I am. There's tons more we could talk about with this. And so what I'll say to that is that uh, on our Patreon, we discuss a lot of what we review further uh, in different aspects to highlight on specific points that our patrons sign up for and ask to hear. If you'd like to do that, that's where we carry on those discussions there. You're, you're welcome to do that. And often it's uh, what I've been project that I've been wanting to throw forward that we're all involved in. We, uh, we have played around with recordings. We've done several, but uh, we're, we're trying to see if uh, what we can give is more to that angle because that's where we feel that uh, not everybody in the world wants to hear about you know that sort of stuff, but those that do, that's where we're at. And that was by request. Um, that being said, um, furthermore, this book is what you need to buy. You know, This is one of the ones where I say, don't, don't, don't sit on this and say, oh man, sounds good. I know how to play David. Buy it. There's a lot that we're not talking to you about. Because it's best read from the book to get the perspective you have unique. Because it'll help you help you build the deva you're trying to build. I don't care what deva you have. When you this is one of those books that as you read it, you will know what to add to your deva. But you gotta read it, and it's not a boring read at all. It's like from that no, was amazing. It's it's as you read, you wanted to read more. You get lost in it. You know it it it's 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 so good on what they did here that you you gotta you gotta see it to believe it. And with that. Um, I'll leave everybody with it. We'll uh, we'll check to you on uh, next time. And I will say, um, thank you, gentlemen. It's always a pleasure to have you both on, and uh, it's a fun journey. Of course. Okay. Now I'm going to say this officially. Yes, I did say this would be the Silver Fang review. Um, I'm going to tell you, we did a lot of whinging on it when me and Nick wax poetic. We we're like, you know what? We'll give you the Silver Fang. It's just it's too soon. Uh, I'm not going to say it's still too soon, but I will say this much: there's uh, a lot in the Silver Fang tribe book. That does govern um, quite a bit that we're going to get into, and I, as a, I, as owner of the podcast, feel that we need more time to to make sure that when we step forward in that book, we say the right things. Because in this world climate right now, what we have going on, 
Um, there is there is tragedy that we don't want to add to. There's nothing heroic to bring up what is a very real horror that Ukraine's going through, and we don't want to at all. Um, even for entertainment, even if like it would get us a million people, you know, whatever it is, it's it's not worth it uh, to hurt even so much as one person. So our attempt is to go through that book and deliver the silver fang and the light that we could just make it werewolf centric and not not regional specific and definitely make it to where we can land home what the silver fang are but it's really hard considering um where you're from and the culture and the people really dictate where the tribe evolved from and so we're working on that and we will deliver that next week hooker by crook we'll either land it or we won't but uh we're not going to back away from it we're just letting you know please be patient thank you for giving us a little more time uh, with that thanks everybody and we'll we do got a surprise for you but we'll mention that later thanks have a good one see you Thank you for listening to our 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast. If you like what you heard and want to support us, please share it with others or leave a review. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.